Blog Talk Radio. Uh oh, guess what day it is? Julie. Huh? Julie. Huh? Guess what day it is? Guess what day it is? Guess what day it is? <laughs> Anybody? Anybody? Mike, 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 Mike. Huh? What day is it, Mike? Huh? Woohoo! Listen, guess what today is? Listen, guess what today is? It's hump day. Hump day! Woohoo! <laughs> hump day. Hump day! Woohoo! <laughs> Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Donaldson Files. This is the Wednesday edition, which means it's Resistance Wednesday. Two hour block of Resistance Radio to the Biden regime. And, uh, and and so the one hour of Donaldson Files followed by one hour of the resistance hour with Dr. Larry and Tom. Um, and, and and tonight's show, um, I'm going to introduce uh, an individual who's not been on our show before, but but the organization, she works for one of the best think tanks, and, and it's and that I think, you know, that I found to be, I want to put it this way, the Center for American Experiment to me is one of the best think tanks out there. It's run, you know, right now the president is John Hinderacker, who's also is the one of the four writers and editors for Amer- for Powerline blog, and uh, and we've had many of their experts on our show uh, joining us, and she is going to talk about. We're going to get into the critical race theory. She's been pretty much on a tour of all of Minnesota, discussing this with parents groups. And we'll get more into that, but I kind of want to first of all, you know, introduce her. She is a policy follow for the Central American Experiment, and you're also the director of Educated Teachers Minnesota and Employee Freedom Minnesota. Uh, what are those two organizations? Can you kind of briefly describe those organizations? Sure. Thanks for having me, Tom. Those are actually two projects of American Experiments, so not separate organizations, just two projects specifically focused on labor reform efforts and informing public employees of their options regarding union membership following the 2018 decision by the U.S. Supreme Court on Janus versus AFSCME. So we help interested public employees resign from the union if they so choose and and help them realize that a lot of their dues money gets spent on politics and other partisan issues that maybe public employees don't want to fund. So those projects are all about labor reform, and we're very pleased to help Minnesotans exercise their First Amendment rights. All right. Now, you started with the Heritage Foundation Youth Leaders Program. Can I talk about that very briefly? Sure. So I interned at the Heritage Foundation through their Young Leaders Program, and that's where I really became interested in education policy. Lindsay Burke over at the Heritage Foundation is still there working on education policy and leads the charge uh, for true education reform on the national level. And so her work and her writings and just being in that environment got me really interested in education. But I realized as I was researching and studying it that I needed to have some firsthand experience. If I was going to talk about education reform efforts and push for solutions and ideas that would 
better help students. I needed to understand what was going on in the classroom. So that led me to join and get accepted by Teach for America, which trained me as a teacher. I went through a teacher in residence program, and then I was placed in Phoenix, Arizona, and I taught at a Title I charter school. So Title I meaning we served predominantly families from low-income backgrounds, and uh, but it was a charter school, so it was a really neat experience. I taught fifth grade all subjects and sixth grade Latin. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, well, I tell you, with the latest, I wanted you on this show because I know you've been on. We'll, we'll discuss the tour, but you know we've had this discussion with other individuals, including um, uh, Dr. Wilfer Riley of Kentucky State University, who's also a member of the 1776 Unite organization by Robert Woodson, about critical race theory. And I think, uh, uh, to me, this is basically a war about culture. But more importantly, I kind of view this as a determination what kind of country we're going to be and how we want to define ourselves as a country. Mm-hmm. And I think this is... It, this is to me. It's like uh, you know, you know, Wilford once kind of texted on Twitter. He said something in effect like, uh, "You know, do you ever get the feeling that those people who run our government really don't like us?" <laughs> <laughs> and but it, it is an interesting aspect because I know that you know what we're really talking about is what does it mean to be an American how we define our history, because those who can, who teach the history or write the history will determine the future of our next, of our history. And if we get it wrong in acting or purposely get it wrong, uh, there's not much hope beyond that. And I think this is one of those issues. And I'm going to ask you, the first question I'm going to ask you is, what is your definition of critical race theory? <laughs> How much time do we have? No. <laughs> uh, Take as so much I, time because I really, I really want people <laughs> to understand this because. Yes. You know, it, I, I mean, I, I know John Pelham did a pretty nice piece uh, in one of your, where he defined it, and he, you know, kind of, and it, I know it's been around for basically about forty years, essentially, and it's kind of an outreach of other critical theories, you know, that deals mm-hmm. with Marxism. And the teaching of Marxism, and it may be like what we call the long journey through the academic setting. So it's been around, but it's now basically front and center. So, yeah, take as much time as you need and define it, because I want people to truly understand what it is that's going to be taught to their children over the, or the attempt to talk to their children. Right, and I I think you start off by making a good point that critical race theory has been around for a while, right? It's framed as an academic approach, an academic discipline, but again, we can have an argument about its role in academics and how it's defined, but what's really become the focus as of late is that real-world application piece of it and what it looks like in practice. And we see that the concerning piece of critical race theory is that it puts a race-based lens on everything, and it's really rooted in an ideology that presents American history as a sequence of oppressions, 
right? So it divides the country into oppressor versus oppressed. But I think you also hinted at something important, too, is that it, it is built on the intellectual framework of class-based Marxism. So Marxism, right, focused on class conflict and, and was class-based. Critical race theory is rebranded as, as race-based Marxism, essentially, so this idea of, of white versus black. It puts people into simplistic racial groupings where people are either labeled as the oppressed or the oppressor, which of course pits different groups of people against each other. So it takes this whole look at American history as a sequence of oppressions caused by the oppressor and identifies who the oppressed are and says, okay, all systems in our society have to be viewed through this lens then that they were built on whiteness and oppression. And it promotes this idea that racism is everywhere. And this has led then to calls that we just need to completely uproot all of the founding institutions and principles and ideas that our country was built on. Uh, there have been calls to tear down institutions such as the Western justice system, the free market economy, and then really replace them with a racial hierarchy in which entire racial groups are monolithically good or bad. So critical race theorists reject essentially all founding principles of the United States. They push that you have rights as a member of a group, but not as an individual, and that people of the same race share common characteristics and personality traits. So if you're white, you're automatically guilty of whiteness, and that is what they seek to uproot out of all systems and institutions in our country. Now, the concerning part about this, aside from the fact that it's extremely divisive and pits people against each other, is how it's being applied. And there are three ways that we really see CRT applied today, and that's through race essentialism, collective guilt, and neo-segregation. And all of these at their core and as they're put into practice violate the most basic principles of equality and justice. So supporters of critical race theory will say, oh, it's just about addressing racism. But when you look at the political premises of CRT, when you understand what it's rooted in, you read from critical race theorists that it's far more than that. It questions the very foundations of the liberal order, including equality theory and legal reasoning, and also neutral principles of, of constitutional law. So it's, it's very troublesome, <laughs> a very troublesome yeah. theory, and uh, it's just that, a theory, right? So. <laughs> yeah. yeah, hold on to that thought right now because I want to follow up on that. Uh, this is Tom Donaldson. Donaldson Paul with Catherine Wigfall of the Center for American Experiment. We're talking critical race theory being taught in the schools, what it means. And well, actually, what, and we're beginning our conversation to try to define what it is. So, but here we'll have a quick break, and we'll be right back. A boy born in Joplin, Missouri, was fascinated by anything with wheels and a motor. The odds of him going on to fascinate millions with his talent? One in 260,000. The odds of this born racer having 157 career top 10 finishes in NASCAR? One in 125 billion. But every driver seeks the pinnacle of their achievements. The odds of him winning both the Daytona 500 and the Brickyard 400 in the same year? One in 195 million. The odds of a child being diagnosed with autism? One in 88. 
I'm NASCAR driver Jamie McMurray, and my niece has autism. Learn more at autismspeaks.org slash signs. Early diagnosis can make a lifetime of difference. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Since Buffalo Wild Wings is always open late, here are a few things you'll enjoy. Buzzer beaters, wings in 21 signature sauces and seasonings, and great deals on food and beer. Grab select domestic draft beers starting at $4. $4 shareables like street tacos, fried pickles, chili queso dip, mozzarella sticks, and roasted garlic mushrooms, and deals on select liquor and house cocktails. Phew, that's a mouthful. Catch all of the late night action. Buffalo Wild Wings, wings, beer, sports. Offers and participation vary. Please drink responsibly. Void where prohibited. Thank you. We're back here with the Nelson file with Catherine Winfall. Wigfall, God. Catherine Wigfall. And, uh, okay, let's, again, let's start following up on this definition because what you're really essentially, you know, and I want to kind of, you know, let me see. I want to get this quote here. This is uh, John Pelham uh, writing um, uh, in uh, the Center for American Experiments. And I know you've kind of talked about this, but I want to really delve in to this. Unlike traditional civil rights discourse, which stresses incrementalism and step-by-step progress, critical race theory questions the very foundations of the liberal order, including equality theory, legal reasoning, enlightenment rationalism, and natural principle of constitutional law. Now, that's a lot of mouthful, but basically they're in effect saying, okay, what we view as, let's say, right, liberality, democracy, Republican form of government, people having a right, uh, equal opportunity, moving up the economic ladder, uh, trying to have you know rule of law that all are treated equally in the law, they have rejected is that how you interpret this? Because that's how I certainly interpret that. It's a complete rejection. Absolutely, right? It's a complete rejection of all of that, of all of the efforts of the civil rights movement. Uh, it rejects the idea of equal protection under the law. It, re- it says that individualism, rationality, and hard work are racist. I mean, all of these are an insult to the hardworking American families of all racial backgrounds. And so, in, again, it, it totally violates all of the work of the civil rights movement and civil leaders to promote equality, fairness, dignity, and most importantly, our common humanity. All right. Okay. Um, I mean, like I say, because I, I wanted to, now let me put it this way. If, you know, as a parent, are there, first, I guess maybe the first question I'm going to ask you, who would you say are the gurus? Who was the ones who were the gurus in the past who promoted this? Who would you say are the gurus today of this theory? Well, obviously a a key author who's spoken about critical race theory has been uh, Richard Delgado. He wrote a book, uh, co-authored a book called Critical Race Theory, an introduction. And so that also was was in the academic space. And there have been uh, other books, such as Foundations of Critical Race Theory in Education, that take articles from scholars in the field of CRT and, and have pushed those out. So this is something that has been written about for years. 
But again, the problem is, is taking this from the academic discipline space and how it is being put into practice is what's very concerning. And there have been studies done over the years on CRT that it marginalizes the black community. There have been individuals from all backgrounds who have spoken out about against CRT. I think uh, even individuals such as Reverend Wyatt T. Walker, who was a close advisor to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he spoke out, wrote an essay in 2015 against CRT. So there have been efforts over the years to try to expose it. But I, again, given recent racial tensions and that sort of thing, activists and supporters of CRT have really capitalized on what CRT is rooted in to then turn it into this real-world application of dividing Americans into oppressor and oppressed based on their skin color. Okay. I, now, first of all, now you deal with the state of Minnesota. So how is the state of Minnesota implementing critical race theory? Is there like a, set, a group of textbooks that they use, or is it more of a we're going to slip this into the curriculum in different fashion you know, with you know, selected textbooks? Yeah, go ahead. No, yeah, I, I think that's that's a great question because – a lot of times we see that critical race theory inspired efforts aren't blatantly called critical race theory. And so it's important to know that CRT and supporters of it, they are what I call masters of language, right? They'll use words that sound non-threatening, such as you know, equity, inclusion, diversity, and then they represent things that we can all be for. We want all students to be included. We want to celebrate diversity, but that don't capture the political premises of CRT. It's really hard to get people to buy into this idea of, of neo-Marxism or race-based Marxism, particularly given that we know all of the countries that have tried a version of this and failed. So efforts in schools may not be directly labeled CRT. They may be more subtle than that. And so while there aren't necessarily specific textbooks that we're seeing in play, now there are textbooks that talk about critical race theory, but most of those are on, on the higher ed level, we do see critical race theory-inspired efforts popping up in a variety of ways. I, I think of a sixth-grade choir teacher in White Bear Lake that led a privilege and oppression activity that divided students into privileged and targeted groups and asked them how they felt about belonging in either the oppressed or oppressor groups or K through second graders in Edina that did a melanin project where students learned to view themselves in terms of skin color, um, segregated staff meetings in the Minneapolis Public School District, meaning one meeting for white staff and another for staff of color. So we see CRT popping up in classrooms in these ways, and that's why it's so important to know what CRT is rooted in and what it looks like in practice because you're not necessarily going to have your child come home with a book in his or her backpack that says critical race theory on it. Yeah, so, okay. Um, now, uh, if you were, first of all, so let me put it this way. Talk about the tour that you're doing uh, and, and what's the response been, and how many, you know, how many groups have you met with uh, and what's been the response? 
Sure, yes. So Center of the American Experiment is currently on a 17-city statewide education tour. It's called Raise Our Standards. You can learn more about it at raiseourstandardsmn.com slash tour. And the purpose of this tour is to really raise awareness of what's going on in Minnesota's public schools. We see how identity politics, critical race theory-inspired efforts are really turning classrooms into ideological battlegrounds and threatening the quality of our children's education. And we launched the tour largely in part because of what we are hearing from Minnesotans, from parents, from grandparents, from taxpayers, saying, you know, what is going on in our education system? We need to better understand it. And plus, the most important thing, we need to know how we can push back. So we're not only using the tour to give parents knowledge on what's going on, but then also equip them with resources to take a stand for all students and say, hey, wait a minute, Minnesota students deserve better and our school system can do better. So the tour has been a huge success. We have done 12 stops and I have been the, the main speaker at all of them, and then several of the stops I've also been joined by Kendall Qualls with Take Charge Minnesota. And so we have a couple more stops net left. Next week we will do our four metro stops, and then we are also working on rescheduling Duluth because there were efforts by uh, Black Lives Matter and the Duluth NAACP to cancel that event. They reached out to the venue that was hosting us and pressured them to cancel on us. So Duluth will be rescheduled. But all that to say, the response has been extremely positive. Most of these events have had at least 100 or more attendees. We've been all across the state as far north as Thief River Falls and all the way down to the Mankato area. And so it's just been really neat to travel across the state and help empower Minnesotans because a lot of times they feel alone in this fight and we want them to know you're not alone and American Experiment is here to support you and it's uh, it's just been really neat to, to be a part of that process. And we've also gotten a lot of great publicity over it statewide but also national attention as well. As As you may know, there have been a ton of efforts, especially at the grassroots level across the country to activate and mobilize parents to push back on CRT and the politicizing of our schools. So it's neat to see Minnesota be in the spotlight uh, for our efforts on the tour and, and help realize that there can be work done to restore our education system and, and push back. Okay. What are the alternative? I mean, how, let me put it this way. Because it seems to me that one of the problems you have in place is that you've got school boards, but you also got the state education board, and we'll get more into the teachers' unions and their role. You know, essentially you're going after the Goliath, and certainly, uh, you know, usually school board elections are not where most, you know, it's kind of like uh, your, your, your neighbor John Jones running, you trust him, you look, you, man, but, you know, you know, very rarely do parents get involved with school boards or school board elections. Uh, and so I guess the first step would be, you know, getting people elected to the school boards. And, you know, has that been something that the center has been involved in or you've been involved in on that level? Or have you kind of taken a step back on the political side? We're, we're not involved as far as 
identifying candidates to run and that sort of thing. So we are, uh, because of our tax status, we're a 501c3 think tank, so yeah. we are nonpartisan, so we can't endorse candidates uh, or that sort of thing. But what we do encourage parents and community members on is to run for school board, and we speak on the importance of getting involved at the local level. We talk about how school board races across the country have been a really great starting point for communities to push back on critical race theory and just identity politics in general. So we encourage parents and, and other community members to run and to get involved that way. And then we also have a, a resource that is soon to be launched. It's not quite ready yet, but a resource that will help connect like-minded Minnesotans, either by district or statewide, however they choose. And we think that that will be another helpful way for these communities to activate and identify an informed, engaged community member who they can support run if they themselves aren't interested in running. So we've definitely highlighted the importance of local school board races, because as you mentioned, they don't always get the attention that they deserve. And we're seeing that parents are becoming more engaged in that process, showing up to school board meetings and that sort of thing. So that's neat. But we don't get involved as far as identifying candidates and and, and pushing for people to vote for them. Um, but we do want to help mobilize Minnesotans to connect in, in any way that they can. Now hold on. Uh, this is Tom Downs of Downs and Files here on the Bachelor News Radio Network. You might know me. I'm 50 Cent. You may follow my tweets, my Facebook friends, Odds are a few in six degrees separate us. We're that close. What's crazy is one in six don't know where their next meal is coming from. These are your co-workers, your neighbors, your friends. Hunger's too close for us to ignore. So visit feedingamerica.org slash hunger and find your local food bank to see how you can make a difference. From one close friend to another, let's do this. I'm 50 Cent and together we are Feeding America. A message from Feeding America and the Ad Council. Napa know-how. Napa guy knows not to judge a man by his car's multicolor paint job or absence of modern gadgetry. Who cares if it's technically old enough to vote and the windows are powered by the strength of your left arm? Your monthly payment is zero, and it'll stay that way. Because with over 500,000 parts and a little Napa know-how, you can keep anything on the road. She may not be pretty, but she's all yours. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. Welcome back to the Donaldson Files. This is Tom Donaldson here on the Bachelor News Radio Network. For more information, if you want to listen to this podcast, you can also turn into the bachelornews.airtime.pro to listen to this show at any time possible. Basically, you go to the website. We have a schedule when these shows are. Plus, you can also listen to our shows on Intune, iTunes, Spotify, Anchor. So you can get. So these shows are available on those networks as well, and you can catch this at any time. And this particular subject will be sponsored by Napa. And don't forget, uh, uh, following this show will be the Resistance Hour with Dr. Larry and Tom, as we discuss the latest issues uh, together. And tonight, uh, Bob Livingston, the former Speaker of the House, will be joining us. Uh, to talk about his experiences and what, and and the and the president administration and the role that they're and the policies they're enacting. So, welcome back to the Donaldson Files with Catherine Wigfall, 
our guest on critical race theory. All right. Okay. Here's the thing. I mean, you've presented a good case, a good definition of critical race theory. And, And it sounds like to me this is more of one of these things where these theories are not so much, as you say, there's not like a textbook, but they incorporate them. In various text, let me put this one. Would you say that there are various textbooks that get picked over some over other, like in the teaching of history? Uh, for years, we've had what I call the Howard Zinn teaching of history. But are there selected textbooks that get the advantages over others that help promote this theory? For example, if, uh, history. You know, what oh, absolutely. Book, yeah, what history no, book I- would they? Use to kind of promote this because obviously they're going to say, "Hey, it's critical race theory, history 101." They're going to say American history, written by fill in the blank. Right. You understand well, my question? Yeah, go ahead. Yes. Yep. And a lot of it obviously comes down to the publisher and how history textbooks are framed. And so what we see popping up in textbooks is really revisionist history. And if we don't learn from our mistakes in history and teach those mistakes, warts and all, then we risk repeating it. And so you'll find textbooks that have uh, inaccuracies, biases, errors in them, and that sort of thing. And so it really does come down to digging into the text itself and, and kind of going line by line and identifying, you know, is there revisionist history that's popping up? Is there one perspective being pitched? Is it an anti-American perspective? Uh, and to your point, you're right, it's not going to be called the Critical Race Theory Textbook 101. Um, and so a lot of it, too, is also dependent on the supplemental materials that teachers pair with textbooks. And I think of the 1619 Project curriculum and the factual inaccuracies and errors that have been pointed out in that project and and the curriculum that's paired with it, but teachers still will use those materials as supplemental materials. Or even Black Lives Matter has put out a curriculum that can get paired with supplemental materials. So something else that we talk about on the tour and share with parents are resources for alternative curricula that can be proposed to teachers and school leadership to use if they see uh, a worksheet come home on the 1619 project or whatnot. And you mentioned 1776 Unites, and they have an excellent, excellent, excellent history curriculum that counters the inaccuracies and fallacies of the 1619 project through complete lesson plans and that sort of thing. So it's tricky to identify specific textbooks, uh, but we can look for common themes that run through them, and it all circles back to this revisionist history approach and teaching students that the most important thing about them begins with their skin color. All right. And, yeah, because this, this, this is to me, you'll have this you get through because it's not so much as I said, they don't say, you know, critical race theory. Uh, it's more, okay, we've got a history book now, we're going to give you the supplemental planning that goes with it. And, 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 and so it's basically, I think what it comes down to is that parents are going to basically have to start looking at the textbooks themselves, not just to just, you know, going to the board and say, okay, let me, let's look at the textbooks. I mean, we're in effect fighting textbooks. You know, they call it a textbook war, but they basically have to look at the textbooks themselves, correct? 
than before right. we move and, any further. Right. And and I think a step before that even that we highlight on the tour as well begins with the social studies revision process that's currently underway. So every 10 years, Minnesota's K-12 academic standards get revised, and this year is social studies turn. And the first draft was released early December 2020. And reading through the first draft, even then, you can see that we're, we're really replacing uh, academic knowledge and skills on key historical events that have shaped our state's and nation's history with the cultivation of politically correct attitudes and commitments. And you can see this through uh, a race-based lens that they look at through for, to study social, social studies, also a, a gender identity-based lens. So again, we see critical race theory-inspired efforts playing a part in even our social studies standards. And then once those standards are approved, they go before local school boards and the school boards select the curriculum and textbooks and that sort of thing to teach the standards. So there's an opportunity for Minnesotans to get involved in the social studies standards revision process and submit feedback on it, which we encourage. And then when it does get to the local school board level, to get involved in the textbook review and selection process as well. Because again, once that textbook is approved, once these standards are approved, the standards set the set the tone and the pace for the next 10 years, and textbooks and that sort of thing aren't reviewed every year by school districts. So it's really important that students get good materials that, that teach them factual history and, and not this one-sided narrative. Yeah. Let me ask you a quick question. Is there a textbook, if somebody said to you, is there like a history book or a text or that you would sit back and say you would recommend? You know, do you ever get that question? I don't get it for specific textbooks. I, I should maybe work on identifying what some of those are because I know there are so many publishers out there with, with a variety of textbooks that they make available. But I will say that the supplemental curricula that's available, I mentioned the history curriculum through 1776 Unites, I think of the Bill of Rights Institute. They have an excellent history curriculum. I think of teachingamericanhistory.org. They have an excellent history curriculum. Hillsdale College, through its academy, puts out a K-12 through curriculum. It can be used for homeschooling materials, but also as supplemental materials, and that's for all subject areas with textbook recommendations and literature recommendations and that sort of thing. So there are a lot of great resources out there uh, that, that teachers and educators and parents can use. Uh, it just gets tricky when you have to deal with a lot of these publishers who essentially have a monopoly on a lot of, on the textbook world. I think of Pearson and that sort of thing. It gets tricky when you when a school district looks for a textbook and they are predominantly the only option. So we're also encouraging parents to get involved in becoming what we're calling a textbook reviewer. And we're partnering with an organization called Truth in Textbooks that actually trains parents to review textbooks and look for inaccuracies and biases and errors and that sort of thing. And then they can take those errors before the school board. And we've seen in other states, such as Texas and Florida, that when that's done, often the school board will remove the textbook from its recommended list, 
There have been instances of where the publisher actually goes through and corrects and updates the inaccuracies that a textbook reviewer points out. So there are a lot of great ways that parents and, and grandparents and interested Minnesotans can get involved to ensure that good textbooks are used. Uh, I, but I don't have you know, a, a solid list yeah. of, of those textbooks, yeah. just a lot of good supplemental materials that are being pushed out to counter a lot of what's being used. Yeah. Well, to me, I don't know if you ever had a chance to read the book uh, from Will, I think it's Will for McRae, uh, Land of Hope. Uh, I always thought to me, when I read that book, it was like, it was like, hey, Eureka, it's a very excellent history book. Uh, okay. Uh, and so that would be my recommendation, but it, it, it's just, yeah. Uh, now, let me ask the question, I want you to get started at this point, and that is this, is that, you know, the tricky part to me is that it's not just, you know, you don't want to, is how you unite a wide variety of parents, regardless of political affiliation, uh, mm-hmm. into this. Because you mentioned very clearly, uh, you know, you know, one of Martin Luther King's associates who has wrote in 2015, uh, I know that the 1776 Unite, you know, if you look at their list of people that they have working with them there from left left to center to right of center so and, you know and so my what is to me the, the biggest challenge for somebody like yourself is be able to present this in such a way that this is not about you know, being a Republican or Democrat or a Fox News listener but your children and the correct teaching of history that affects everybody in this room uh, you know and, I, and so the, my question to you would be is, when you go to these meetings, I mean, you're a 501 c 3 so you're not going to be politically, but how do you kind of keep it from, oh, you're just a right-wing extremist saying this, you're a racist saying this, or you're a Fox News giving us the Fox News version? You know, you know how do you deal with those kind of criticisms, and how do you move beyond to basically address the fact that this is a should be a bipartisan issue. Go ahead. Sources and examples, right? Everything that we present in the tour is supported through sources, whether that's a critical race theorist who has written about it or an activist who has embraced critical race theory. So we're, we're not making up any of this language or the roots of CRT. And so it's really important to use critical race theorists' own words as you noted, John Phelan did in his post when he pulled from Robert Delgado's book, and so to really highlight what CRT is and what it's rooted in. And then also examples, right? If you share what a school district is doing, that's, that's not a, a partisan issue because it, that is what happened, and you're just laying out the facts and the examples. Uh, if you talk about what the social studies standards describe and the language that they use, that, again, is is a fact. It's a document that was published. And so we're really seeing parents from all across the political spectrum push back on this. So examples not only of, of how CRT is being infused into schools, but then examples of parents who push back. You have uh, parents from black communities, you have parents from Asian communities, you have white parents, I mean, you have parents who are liberal and recognize that this is just very extreme and divisive who are pushing back. Because what we all you need, need to get united around, 
that really makes opposition to CRT a bipartisan issue is that teaching children to disregard character and to measure people's relative worth on the basis of either skin color or sex or other variable characteristics is not conducive to the healthy development of children, to a, a healthy society, and it certainly doesn't help children develop into good citizens. It doesn't help restore and, and reconcile the, our past and, and the, the things that we have to fix in society. And so that's what really all Americans can get behind, and we have seen that across the country. This is Tom Donaldson, Donaldson Files on the Bachelor News Radio Network. Um, we're talking with Catherine Wickfall. We'll have more as a follow-up um, after these words. Let's go, guys! Hey, did you guys know that kids who play sports earn more money when they grow up? Of course. I I knew that. Hey, did you guys know that kids who read books have a bigger vocabulary? Oh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> wow, Jinx. <laughs> did you guys know that friendly children have more friends? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That's true. I knew that. Did you guys know that winter babies are better at music? Everyone knows that. Oh, yeah? yeah. Pretty obvious. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. obvious. Oh, hey, guys, did you know that most people think they're using the right car seat for their kid, but they're not? Huh, I didn't know that. I'm pretty sure I knew that. I'm pretty sure you didn't. Parents who really know it all know for sure that their child is in the right car seat at the right age and size. Visit safercar.gov slash the right seat to make sure your child is protected. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. We're back here on the Dawson Files on the Bachelor News Radio Network with uh, Catherine Wickfall. Okay, now let me. I think you made a pretty good point of you know trying to you know reach this out because I think that that to me is a vitally important aspect of trying to basically recapture because this is not about like I say Republican or Democrat. It's about what does it mean to be an American how we define what it means to be American and whether or not we're still going to define ourselves, you know, as a, what I would class as a liberal order of Republican form of government where opportunity exists for all to move up the economic ladder. And so very briefly, and I thought you mentioned that you had, uh, you gave some information about the, your materials through the center would you go ahead and repeat that? You know how they can learn more about it through the center, what you're doing? Oh, absolutely. Yes. So to learn more specifically about our 17-city statewide tour that's focusing on critical race theory and identity politics, you can visit raiseourstandardsmn.com slash tour, and you'll see a map with the different locations across the state. We have visited. We have four metro stops coming up next week, Maple Grove, Coon Rapids, Woodbury, Oakdale area, and Burnsville. 
And then we will also be rescheduling Duluth if you are in the Duluth area. So those events are free to attend, and we welcome all to attend, no matter what perspective you may have on critical race theory. And then also through our website, AmericanExperiment.org, we write about a lot of education-related issues. Once the tour is done and my schedule slows down a bit, I plan on, on writing more about this on our website. So there are definitely ways to learn more and find out how you can push back. We have a list of action items that we pass out on the tour, and I would be happy to share those with anyone who wants to email me. You can find my email address at AmericanExperiment.org. Or if you just have questions about what can you do in your local school district, we're encouraging parents to dig into school policy and that sort of thing. So I, I would be happy to provide additional resources and support if that's of interest. Hi. Uh, do you have any kind of like materials yourself that you know that are reports or that you guys have done or that's something you're still working on? We are still working on that. Um, I will say, so I mentioned that Kendall Qualls with Take Charge Minnesota has been joining us on some of our stops and on his website, takechargemn.com. He has a great resource that's already out. We're looking on doing something similar, but it's called Conversations on Critical Race Theory, Informed Answers to Common Questions. And it's a very simple back and forth guide on, okay, they say this, you say this, right? And it, and it gives readers uh, an opportunity to, to identify some responses that they can use against the common arguments in favor of CRT. So, and, and really highlights the importance that, you know, CRT is becoming an accepted doctrine if we remain quiet uh, and we refuse to denounce it. So it's really important to speak out against it and to stay on the offense. So his resource, uh, Conversations on Critical Race Theory, that can be found at takechargemn.com, is a great resource to start off, uh, especially if you're new to understanding what CRT actually is and that sort of thing. But we do plan on providing lots of resources to parents and just Minnesotans in general through our soon-to-be-launched microsite called Illumined. Illumined meaning it will shine a light on Minnesota schools. And so if there are interested listeners who want to get plugged in with that resource, they can reach out to me, and I can keep them informed of when that becomes available. Okay. Now, how about the teachers' union? So what role are they playing in the teaching of this, or are they playing a role in the teaching of this? Well, we at the center firmly believe that the teachers' union has one of the strongest, if not the strongest, grips on education in Minnesota. And we see this also with not necessarily them specifically endorsing critical race theory, but we see them actively pushing social justice resources, uh, anti-racism resources, um, resources on how to confront white nationalism in schools. So they have a, a page on their website that is dedicated solely to listing all of these different resources. Some of them are very concerning because they promote ideas such as, you know, the only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination, and the only remedy to present discrimination is future discrimination. 
So they, they make those resources available to teachers and educators. And so, again, it goes back to it may not be labeled CRT, but it's definitely CRT-inspired. So they, they push that social justice agenda. And then, of course, the dues that teachers pay to be a union member also get used for different political purposes. And whether that's lobbying or supporting groups that then support Black Lives Matter and things like that. And so they are very involved in the political scene. And they are also very involved in this whole push to uh, get rid of whiteness, to address anti-racism and that sort of thing. Well, okay. Let me try and follow up on the union side of the equation because basically, you know, to me, the one aspect of a union should be, you know, working conditions in the place. But you're basically, you know, are saying in effect they're taking charge of what the curriculum should be as well. Is that, uh, would that be a fair assessment? Yes, we've really seen unions, public sector unions in particular, shift away from their focus of workplace conditions, compensation, that sort of thing, the collective bargaining side, and getting involved in very controversial politics, uh, putting out materials, as I mentioned, that teachers and educators can use, pushing for teacher trainings, pushing for uh, recertification trainings that teachers have to go through that focus on becoming an anti-racist and that sort of thing. So they have their hands in a lot of different cookie jars, and it's, it's concerning because we have teachers who face, you know, a ton of burdens and have to maneuver through a lot of different challenges in the classroom. And I can't tell you how many I've heard from who have said, you know, I really don't feel like my union is prioritizing my professional needs and professional development, and they're just getting caught up in politics. All right. Now, let me – here's the – okay, here's the other concern I do have, and I want to kind of get your views, is that that this has started to infiltrate many of the private school sectors. Mm. Uh, because obviously uh, – is that uh, – and so my question would be, is it infiltrating because there was a – what was it? Oh, I think on the Powerline blog, you had the 15-year-old child, the 15-year-old teenager, talk about, you know, give it like a five-minute presentation on, on critical race and some of the what was being taught, and then at the very end he says, "Goodbye, I'm now I'm off to a private school." Uh, so mm-hmm. my question is, is, is this infiltrating private schools as well, or will it down road if we don't stop it? Yeah. The short answer mean? is yes, right? So first of all, I do want to say that that young man uh, gave a very powerful testimony before his school board, and if you have not seen that, please look it up. He he spoke before the Rosemont School Board, and he's only 15 years old, and it, he just laid out the, the challenges uh, with CRT and essentially said, you know, it's, it's your loss that I'm going to now graduate from a, a private school. But, you know, I, I don't know which private school he's going to, but it, it is worth mentioning that there are private schools and, in fact, very expensive and prestigious private schools who have caved to the pressure to focus on teaching students to view their identity through this very limiting lens 
and to push these F, these ideas that are rooted in CRT. And it's concerning, and it's tricky for parents to identify whether or not the school is going to focus on this uh, because not all school curriculum and textbooks is made available or readily accessible for parents and that sort of thing. But, yes, we are seeing this coming and already in play at, at private schools, both religious and non-religious. Well, actually, that is because basically you're fighting a two-pronged war. <laughs> <laughs> right, yes. And, you know, again, this is not a blanket statement against all public schools or against all teachers or, or school board members because we do know that there are school leaders and, and teachers and such out there who recognize that these ideas are harmful and dangerous and are standing strong and pushing back. So we want to make sure that we... Uh, encourage them and support them in those efforts because I'm, I'm sure it's not easy. But it's also important for parents to be aware of how this could pop up in their school so that they can address it before it does or even just consider a different learning environment altogether. All right. Um, I'm, I'm still trying to find it because I know uh, John Hinderacker had this on Powerline blogging, so I'll what I will do is I will basically put this on my Twitter site as well as DonaldsonTFiles.com, DonaldsonTFiles.com sometime tonight if I can find, because I think it was like three or four days ago they had it on Powerline blog, but it was a very powerful statement. I thought what the, the young man did, I mean, it was like, I mean, he he nailed everything in five minutes pretty nice. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> now, Let's kind of very switch very briefly to, you know, charter schools. You, know, you taught at charter schools, and and certainly, like, you know, so and and again, I see a war on charter schools, which so essentially public schools, but they're public schools with selected purposes, you know, with different stand, you know, with a higher standard, and uh, and so the question I would throw back to you is, you know, what's the status of charter schools in the state of Minnesota? Well, they they are under attack in some sense, right? The, the teachers' union has called for a moratorium to be put on charter schools. Our, our president has called for, for that. And so you do see this type of learning environment uh, being attacked. And now, granted, you know, there are charter schools, just like any other type of learning environment, that, that struggle, but there are also a ton of excellent charter schools in Minnesota that do serve students better than their local no neighborhood school will. And so I, I think it's important to support learning environments in whatever form they come in. Charter schools is, is one of those options. But also to not forget that Minnesota parents should be able to access other learning environments as well, such as private schools. There are a lot of homeschooling co-ops. There are virtual online schools. There are micro schools available. And so we're seeing, especially because of COVID, and then now as parents become more aware of what students are or aren't learning and curriculum concerns, there's a lot of interest from parents to explore other learning environments and how students are learning. And, and charter schools is absolutely one of those options. All right. Uh let me okay. So, how many charter schools are there in Minnesota? Do you have a number oh. on that, or where? 
goodness. I I don't have an exact number, but I I know I know there are many. <laughs> um I want to say there I know there so there are about 338 public school districts uh in Minnesota and I think when that's paired with charter schools the number pushes nearly 550 600 or so so do the math on that but uh if if your listeners are interested I can absolutely get an exact count so we do we do see them in various locations across the state obviously in in more heavily populated areas there are more options for charter schools than others but Minnesota does have does have many and uh, often when we receive state rankings or school rankings by state we see a lot of uh, char- the top schools are are charter schools so uh, that's encouraging to see as well that students can succeed in a different learning environment. Not all students thrive in the same learning environment, and there are great charter school options in the state, but also other great school options too. All right, so sounds good. Uh, so we got about three, you know, about five minutes left. So what I want to do here is number one, have you talk about the Center for American Experiment uh, on the edu- you know, the education side of the equation. So. Uh, I'm going to give you a chance to advertise yourself and and the rest of the center on what your work you're doing and how people can give you money and everything else. Oh, great. I love making a pitch (laughs) for our work. (laughs) So Center of the American Experiment, in a nutshell, we are a public policy organization. We were founded in 1990 by Mitch Perlstein. And our goal is to research various policy issues ranging from the economy to education to health care, the family, uh, state and local government, and then craft and propose solutions to these policy issue areas that really focus on key values such as free enterprise, limited government, personal responsibility, and government accountability. And so we really get our research and our work out there in a variety of ways, whether that's testifying at the Capitol, op-eds, radio ads, uh, doing television programs, radio programs, podcasts, right, Uh, grassroots campaigns such as our education tour. And our goal is to make Minnesota a, a better and a more free state. And so it's really important that Minnesotans let us know what they are concerned about or want us to push for because we feel like we're a good sounding board for the state because, again, we can go to the Capitol, we can write things that get picked up by newspapers and other media, and we take great pride in the fact that we are funded by thousands of Minnesotans across the state. So we are a nonprofit. We rely on donor contributions. And we have seen Minnesotans across the state fund our efforts over the years, and we think that uh, we've done a lot of great work. And there is actually an opportunity to donate and support our education tour. So if our mission to kind of bring awareness to CRT and identity politics resonates with you, through the Raise Our Standards page that I mentioned, raiseourstandardsmn.com slash tour, there's a donate button. And for this tour in particular, we have a donor who has provided a matching grant of up to $100,000. 
So anything that is donated to this tour and these efforts will be doubled. And so we encourage you to uh, support us in these efforts as we work to inform Minnesotans and connect them. The app and microsite I mentioned does cost money to develop, but we just appreciate all of the Minnesotans who have supported us across the years, and we uh, welcome new additions as well. Well, listen, thank you very much. This is Tom Donaldson here on the Donaldson Files on the Bachelor News Radio Network. I want to thank uh, Catherine Wigfall for spending time with us tonight, and we'll have to bring you back on because I know you've done a lot of different studies, and you just did a, a study in a, dealing with school choice. So I would love to bring you on you know, to kind of follow up on that as well. So thank you for being on our show, and we appreciate it. Absolutely. We'd love to here. come back. Yeah, this is the Donaldson Files with the Bachelor News Radio Network saying good night. Trumpet, you know it's the Resistance Hour with Dr. Larry and Tom Donaldson on the Bachelor News Radio Network. I'm Dr. Larry Fidewa, and uh, I'll be your host, uh, co-host uh, tonight. And uh, our special guest is a distinguished uh, former congressman, uh, Robert Livingston, and. Uh, he is a uh, veteran of the many of war in the uh, in the chambers of the United States government and beyond. And uh, Bob, welcome to the uh, Resistance Hour. Thank you, Larry. Tom, really good to speak with you both again. Hope uh, everybody's yeah. well and the prospective happy Fourth of July. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. that. Kind of what we ought to be talking about, right? (laughs) Have we been given permission by our leaders to celebrate the 4th? I was just kind of curious. Uh, I don't know. Do you have your mask on? Well, they may may fine us. (laughs) That's right. They'll trap us. Well, these days, uh, whether whether Biden gives you permission or not, maybe your school board will close you down. Yeah. Holy smokes. (laughs) Yeah, Tom, we, yeah. you may not have heard about it, but we had a big Donnybrook in a uh, uh, local uh, school board meeting uh, here in uh, the Northern Virginia area, and uh, they the ended up it? arresting yeah. a guy. That's crazy. What days they, they we were, were in? I'm sorry? And I say, what days we have gone to? I don't know what happened. You said I was a yeah. veteran of a lot of uh, wars in the in the government uh, in the past, and that's true, after uh, 22 years in the Congress and and, and the House of Representatives, but uh, I didn't see anything like uh, we're seeing in government, uh, both at the the federal level or the state level in so many states these days. So much violence. Yeah. yeah. 
we're just not used to a lot of violence on the home front. No. No, we're not. And, you know, I tell you what. Yeah, you know, we just we, we were talking about this on the on my on the Donaldson piles earlier with uh, Catherine Wickfall of the Center for American Experiment. And what we're, you know, I, I'm going to ask the you know have both have the both of you because here's what I'm thinking is we're we're looking we're at a political point where we're literally debating what it is to be an American. I mean, it used to be. I will put it this way, Bob. I have to imagine if 30 years ago, uh, sitting in Congress, if you asked this question of your fellow Democrats, I doubt that you would have gotten a significantly different answer uh, than what you were thinking. But today, I doubt that you can come up with a same answer of what it means to be an American. You know, somebody like an Alexander Cortez is not going to give you an answer that may be a, you know, the the gentleman whose name I cannot remember, but I have to imagine he was working with you in Congress, who she replaced. Well, and Tom, I, you're absolutely right. Uh, uh, when I was uh, in Congress, I, mean, I, I had a lot of good friends on the Democrat side and uh, people who were hardly more uh, less uh, conservative than I, uh, maybe a little bit on the fringes. Uh, but in our committee, we had a lady by the name of Nancy Pelosi, and Nancy Pelosi was the most far left person uh, on the committee, and and she was a, a San Francisco Democrat. And we used to all joke. I'm not, when I'm saying we all, all, all the Republicans and many money or most of the Democrats uh, would laugh and and know that nothing she said or did would ever get into law. Uh, well, she's been speaker twice. And now Nancy Pelosi, who was then AOC before AOC was born, that is uh, House Studio Till Cortez, whatever her name is, uh, she was AOC before she was born. Uh, she is now the predominant force in the House of Representatives, and her mindset controls the House of Representatives. And even though they only have a five-vote uh, margin, uh, they seem to be able to get anything they want through. Well, in the House of Representatives, that's all you need is five votes. As long as everybody votes the right way, you know they're going to get what they want. Yeah. And she's a, and there's a pretty, she's pretty tough about making sure they are disciplined to do exactly that. Well, she's hardly she's very 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 tough. She's authoritarian, in fact, because she brooks no dissent. Uh, and she's she's because she's from San Francisco, she can raise more money than anybody else in the Congress. Uh, and so she either supports. Uh, uh, those people uh, on her side of the aisle, of the Democrats, uh, or she's against them. Uh, her her strength was shown to us in the early days when she was first time speaker, and she took uh, she just simply removed the strongest uh, committee chairman in the entire Congress, John Dingell, of uh, uh, of Michigan, and and even though he was perhaps one of the strongest and and effective and mo- and best. Chairman, uh, Republican or Democrat, on the House Energy and Energy and Commerce Committee, uh, she just took him off and replaced him by Henry Waxman, who was her minion from California, and uh, the rest is history. Uh, that showed how mm-hmm. strong she was, and nobody's been able to buck her since. And she just rules the roost as yeah. the pre- predominant authoritarian in the House. Do you think well, that, that? Do you think her fundraising ability is the 
Is is the club that she's using to have this terrific discipline? Oh, uh, no doubt about it. Uh, and, well, now she has enough people in uh, on her side that they uh, now that the odd squads come in with the uh, AOC and the rest of them. Uh, but uh, she's got the votes. I mean, the, the the majority, the clear majority of the Democrat Party in the House of Representatives is what you call progressive. Uh, that's what Teddy Roosevelt called himself a hundred uh, 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 yeah, years ago. That's what Woodrow Wilson called himself, progressive. Today, progressive is far left of anything that's progressive. It's basically Marxist. Well, it's not a... It's not, yeah, Marxist is a better word. Well, not only that, but you got, you know, you got people, I mean, the difference will be, you know, when you were there, there was only one person who called himself a socialist, and that was Bernie Sanders. I'm not sure if he was in the House at the time or he had moved up to the Senate. But today, well, he was always, he was in the House and he uh, he was, yes, he was a socialist and and he was the only guy that called himself a socialist. Uh, and now yeah. a lot of people bear the uh, the label pretty proudly, but he he is actually yeah. more conservative on some issues than than so many of these other yeah. people. In that he, he's he's uh, against gun control, for example, it comes from Vermont. And well, hey, find, find me another progressive that's against gun control. Yeah, yeah especially after this afternoon, when the president comes out and says that the the great uh, crime wave we're experiencing in the Democrat cities of the country is because of we have weak, uh, we have too many guns. And yeah, funny thing about all those guns, Larry. Uh, isn't it amazing how they run around the city and shoot themselves? Yeah. What well, yeah, people don't know. Yeah. I find, yeah, you would think that it seems to be it's like uh, you know they all seem to be most of these murders seem to be in certain locations. Run by Democrats. <laughs> well, that with the strongest other. gun controls uh, in the world. Uh, yeah. Chicago has total about as hard yeah. gun control as you have anywhere in the, in the country, and they've got more murders than any other city in the country yeah. on a regular basis, like ten a night or something. Well, yeah. we're um, at the first break, and uh, this is the uh, resistance hour on the Bachelor News Radio Network. A boy born in Joplin, Missouri was fascinated by anything with wheels and a motor. The odds of him going on to fascinate millions with his talent? One in 260,000. The odds of this born racer having 157 career top 10 finishes in NASCAR? One in 125 billion. But every driver seeks the pinnacle of their achievements. The odds of him winning both the Daytona 500 and the Brickyard 400 in the same year? 1 in 195 million. The odds of a child being diagnosed with autism? 1 in 88. I'm NASCAR driver Jamie McMurray, and my niece has autism. Learn more at autismspeaks.org slash signs. Early diagnosis can make a lifetime of difference. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. 
Since Buffalo Wild Wings is always open late, here are a few things you'll enjoy. Buzzer beaters, wings in 21 signature sauces and seasonings, and great deals on food and beer. Grab select domestic draft beers starting at $4. $4 shareables like street tacos, fried pickles, chili queso dip, mozzarella sticks, and roasted garlic mushrooms, and deals on select liquor and house cocktails. Phew, that's a mouthful. Catch all of the late night action. Buffalo Wild Wings. Wings, beer, sports. Offers and participation vary. Please drink responsibly. Void where prohibited. You're listening to the Resistance Hour on the Bachelor News Radio Network, and we're talking to uh, Bob Livingston tonight, who's got a whole book full of stories that um, I reviewed at the time that he sent it out, and it's it was a great uh, great read, Bob. Thank you. Uh, um, I, I, let's uh, let's talk a little bit. Uh, um, try 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 to get a little uh, uh, continuity in our discussion here tonight. It's it's very hard uh, because every place you look, there's a great target. But starting, uh, how about the uh, the problem, uh, or I mean the uh, the big meeting of the G7 and then the, the Putin uh, meeting uh, afterward, and. Um, Everybody was saying, basically, I think pretty much the same thing. I, uh, I was asked on a, a radio interview recently, uh, "What did I? What? What? What do I think of the the uh, results of the uh, of the G7 meeting?" And I, I, my answer was, "All talk and no do," and that's uh, that's kind of where I where I come out, and. Uh, uh, Tom, uh, what do you think? You know, yeah, I, I'm going to say, I mean, here's the thing to me, what I find you know, interesting about the end is this, is that, you know, the the one thing we've learned is that we're back to following from behind. But you look at the accomplishments, you know, I'm still trying to find out the accomplishment because before he went over there, he all but appeased Putin on the, and the Germans on the pipeline. So he basically has done that. Uh, he's all but trying to, you know, prostrate himself to the Iranians to get some negotiations again on that treaty. Uh, 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 Tom, excuse me, but it wasn't a treaty. Yeah. It was an agreement right. between Obama and those people. And, uh, okay. Yeah, and, you're right. And, it, and Trump yeah. dissolved it. And now this idiot's trying to, excuse me, this person's trying to, uh, uh, reinstated. Yeah, you're right. I misspoke. I forgot. We used to have treaties. Now they're called agreements. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of that, though, Bob, what do you think? Uh, do you think that the uh, Senate's going to be able to enforce its uh, constitutional rights regarding that agreement and treat it as a treaty? Uh, no. The, the, the Congress uh, kind of neutered itself uh, went around, went around the first time, uh, and in fact, it was the Republican uh, Bob Corker of Tennessee who kind of turned the Constitution on its end because uh, any treaty has to be ratified by the two thirds of the Senate. Well, right. they knew they could never get two thirds of the Senate, so Corker said you needed two thirds to uh, to to reject it, and they didn't have that, so the thing went ahead. But it went ahead as an agreement, not as a treaty. Uh, now, uh, 
uh, Biden, if he want, if he, his administration is able to put it together, uh, they can do it under the same context, probably. Uh, but uh, it's, there's a good chance that it uh, uh, won't happen simply because the Iranians want the original deal. They don't want an amended deal. And uh, you got some hardliners. One of the uber hardliners was just elected president in Iran, and he's not conceding anything. In the meantime, they take any money that we give them or would give them and go give it to their proxies all around the world to kill Americans. Well, it's it's a very, very um, sad uh, situation. It's also a very dangerous situation. Um, they, they, they just don't – you just wonder what are they thinking. I mean, <laughs> well, you wonder about that when foreign policy and domestic policy. I mean, the initiatives that have come out of, of this administration, just in the last five months, are already creating hyperinflation. Uh, they're creating hyper, uh, uh, well, they are, I'd say hyper immigration, but there are no borders now. They just torn down the borders and rejected everything that uh, Trump did down, down there. So people pouring in, whether they're uh, Central American immigrants or Middle Eastern or Iranian or anything else. Uh, they've caught Chinese people coming across the border. Uh, so it's a, it's a, it's a real problem uh, from the standpoint of what the administration is trying to accomplish. Uh, they're going to, they want to eliminate fossil fuels. Are you going to be driving an electric car anytime in your life, Larry? I would suggest probably not unless the government pays for it. But where does the electricity come from? Well, that's right. If an yeah, I mean, extra-magnetic extra perception, if a, if a bomb went off in the atmosphere, we wouldn't have any electrical grid at all. Uh, if you were in Texas in the winter last night, uh, last year, uh, the, the, the whole uh, grid went down because uh, the windmills were frozen and the uh, uh, solar panels were covered with snow. No electricity, no, uh, no electric cars. This is stupid. But... Yeah. Most, what is it, Some almost 90% of our um, electricity in this country and less than some others, uh, such as France, but but uh, here at least, and, and in general and throughout the world, the, the primary source of electricity is fossil fuel of one kind or another. If you include coal. And, and so people are driving... Electric, electrical cars, but they have to go to the fossil fuel to get the electricity to run the car. So how, how does that uh, help well, us? I just don't think it's realistic, and I think sooner or later people at conclusion. Uh, the fact is we can't get uh, – they want to be 80% electric cars by 2035 or something like that. That's not going to happen. Uh, they want to get rid of fossil fuels. That's not going to happen. He's he's discouraging fracking all around the country, uh, yep. and he's he's uh, he's sort of, uh, canceling oil leases and and uh, doing all he Five can. I mean, he he is beholden. He's he's absolutely following the Bernie Sanders uh, AOC agenda, and uh, we're stuck with it for another three and a half years. I just hope we can survive. Well, my um, my. Conclusion was, as I told somebody the other day, you know, I think that 
I think the problem of even even in this next election is going to be if people are if it's going to cost them a hundred dollars to fill up their gas tank, they're they're not going to vote for the Democrats, and that's think, not, that's right. not far off either. A year ago, I filled up in Louisiana, uh, or maybe it was in Mississippi. Uh, at a dollar sixty a tank a, a gallon, uh, filled up my old car. Uh, now it's over three dollars. <laughs> so yeah, we've come well, a long way, baby. Well, we we we, we uh, filled up for sixty dollars for a uh, f- uh, to fill up the tank here uh, in uh, Virginia uh, just uh, a little while ago, and and it's it's up since then. Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, what what are they thinking? I mean, don't they understand that that this this is going to happen? A guy in oh. the Democrat Party and in, in, from Chicago about five years ago was uh, talking to a reporter, and he was talking about this kinds of a kind of agenda, and uh, the reporter retorted, "Well, what about the law of economics?" And he said, oh, "We'll repeal it." <laughs> well, that shows how much she knows about it. <laughs> well, actually, it. well, you know, the, I, you know, the thing is, he, he that individual truly meets it. They think they can actually do that. Yeah, uh, yeah, they yeah. do. They do. So well, there was another guy yeah. in North Carolina who were. Uh, a few years ago that we were putting too many troops on Guam and he asked the admiral do you, do you oh, think yes. it, it, it might turn the island over <laughs> <laughs> yeah cast lines yeah one of the great yeah that's one of the great lines i mean it's like i mean you know i tell you you, know, you don't necessarily have to know anything to get elected you just have to get elected yep uh, uh there is no qualification other than age uh, I think what's it? The House of Representatives, what's it? Twenty-five, and, and Senate to be thirty uh, years yeah, of age. Yeah, House, House is twenty-five, Senate's uh, thirty, and, and Presidency is thirty-five. Thirty-five. So, as long as you're thirty years old and breathing, you can be a U.S. senator. And as long as you're twenty-five and breathing, you can be a congressman or congresswoman. Yeah, that's right. Well, and then, or you can be in. Uh, uh, you could be mayor of a small town in Wisconsin and, and get yourself run for president, do absolutely nothing, get get very few votes, but get appointed to the Secretary of Transportation, and show that everybody that you're saving energy by riding a bike after your uh, police escort has let you off two block profits. That was Indiana. Yeah, yeah South Yeah, Indiana. you're right. Yeah. Uh, South yeah, Indiana, yeah, that's right. Hey, it's a great Mike Pence's state. Yeah, ASA, South Bend, Indiana, a great training place for the Department of Transportation. Well, at least if <laughs> nothing else, he can at least look over the look outside and see how Interstate 80. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, you got you you in, in Iowa. Anybody in Iowa is pretty uh, familiar with Interstate 80, aren't they? Uh, aren't they oh Tom? yeah. Well, so here's the thing. Here's the thing. Interstate 80 it goes, you know, basically from the east all the way to California. Uh, 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 we had the opportunity. I had the opportunity. You know, like my daughter lives in Reno, Nevada, 
and we, you know, we've driven out there. And let me tell you, it's. I will say this: you cannot get lost getting to Reno from Iowa. You just go on Interstate 80 and you'll run into Reno. You'll run into Reno. <laughs> well, but just take the right go, exit. You just get the right exit because, baby, I mean, it's like, I mean, we went through Nebraska, Wyoming, Utah. Uh, it's a little tricky pretty, getting through pretty, the Rockies. Yeah. And it is in the winter. It is in the winter. Yeah, you're right. So... I remember getting lost in a, getting a, not lost, but I, I remember trying to go through the Rockies in a in a blizzard one night, <clears throat> trying to get to uh, uh, the, the the west coast from Denver, and um, I had chains on the on the wheels, on the uh, tires, but but the ch- the chains came off, <laughs> and. Uh, and and I had my young wife with me, and she was uh, she was blissfully unaware of the uh, fact that her life was was hanging by a thread. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so uh, I guess I guess the other the other issue that that really uh, is is hot right now is this whole uh, border situation with the. Uh, the vice president finally, well, first of all, the ex-president declares that he's going down there next week or to the end of this week. And then suddenly the uh, vice president decides that she has to get down there immediately. And uh, the uh, current <laughs> president he has to get down there two days after she does. And they've been avoiding it now for three months. Um but it it is it is what we're seeing and hearing is is absolutely uh uh terrible i mean uh, children are in cages and they're being uh, i don't know they're apparently uh there's a lot of you know, you, there's just a lot of malfeasance going on in terms of uh, the adults yeah, that's the that's the understatement. But you know, when Trump was doing it right, and that we had uh, accomplished the uh, the barring of immigration uh, down to that border better than anything for maybe the preceding five presidents, uh, the AOC and her odd squad group uh, were yelling at him every day about caging of, of children and sort of thing. Uh, now. It's it's just an open border. There's, they're just pouring through. You've got uh, the the uh, drug cartels r- running the, the people up uh, to just close to the border. Then the coyotes take them and cross them live across the border. They uh, they use them for sexual exploitation. They use them uh, uh, both children and, and and women. They've they uh, just uh, become some many of them slaves. And and they're they're illegal, so that they don't have credibility here, uh, or to get cleared for your legal employment. So they end up taking low-paying jobs uh, anywhere they can do it, and that means that our impoverished, our unemployed Americans uh, have competition for jobs, and that their wages go down. So there's just no no sense in it whatsoever, but. The Biden administration was pre predetermined 
to just uh, do this on day one. He started signing executive orders through his ears, and uh, now we've got what we got. And I, I think it's a tragedy. It's real undermining America, and I don't. I think it's by design. I honestly think these people intended to do what they're doing. Well, hold that thought. You're listening to the the Resistance Hour on the uh, Bachelor News Radio Network. Go, Caleb! Come on, hit a homer, Jesse! Go, guys! Hey, did you guys know that kids who play sports earn more money when they grow up? (laughs) Of course. I, I knew that. Hey, did you guys know that kids who read books have a bigger vocabulary? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Wow, Jinx. (laughs) Did you guys know that friendly children have more friends? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. That's true. I knew that. Did you guys know that winter babies are better at music? Everyone knows that. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Pretty obvious. Yeah, Yeah. so obvious. Oh, hey, guys, did you know that most people think they're using the right car seat for their kid, but they're not? Huh, I didn't know that. I'm pretty sure I knew that. I'm pretty sure you didn't. Parents who really know it all know for sure that their child is in the right car seat at the right age and size. Visit safercar.gov slash the right seat to make sure your child is protected. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Napa know-how. Napa guy knows not to judge a man by his car's multicolor paint job or absence of modern gadgetry. Who cares if it's technically old enough to vote and the windows are powered by the strength of your left arm? Your monthly payment is zero, and it'll stay that way. Because with over 500,000 parts and a little Napa know-how, you can keep anything on the road. She may not be pretty, but she's all yours. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. You're listening to the Resistance Hour with uh, Dr. Larry and Tom Donaldson, and tonight with Bob Livingston. Uh, and uh, Tom, I mean Bob, you were just talking about the uh, all of the ramifications of the uh, this flood of people coming through the border. The other the other problem is it's not confined to the uh, border. You know, they were shipping these these people all over the country. And they're causing tremendous uh, problems, especially in smaller in smaller towns where, you know, a, a flood of a uh, hundred people can make a big difference in the uh, in the budget of the of the town, and they don't have the money to pay for the uh, multilingual education and uh, and the housing and, and the, uh, welfare and oh God. Yeah, and that, and that Larry, all... it's, a, it's a problem, and and we can't absorb them. But uh, the Biden administration doesn't seem to care. Now they're going down to the border because Trump's embarrassed them, and uh, it's going to be curious. It, it, what they really didn't want to do is go to the border and have the press pay attention to them. Uh, but now that they're going, the press will be there. And and I'll let that let excuse me if I can divert, but the press has been carrying the water for the Biden administration and for the Obama administration and against Trump administration uh, for the last 10 years. Uh, we have an, an incredibly biased, uh, I don't like to call them mainstream press. I, I'll call it the left-wing press uh, because you still got uh, Fox and, and Newsmax and, and uh, OAN and a few other groups, and you've got uh, talk radio. But uh, the left-wing press, is just carrying the water for the Democrat Party. They become Pravda East or something, 
and uh, it's it's just horrible of what's happening that the between the media and the social media, the, the, the Twitter and uh, uh, Facebook and so forth, that uh, the American people are not getting the facts. I mean, we, we're, we're talking about whether the good people that are listening to this podcast, they probably know what's going on. But if you don't watch Fox or one of these other conservative stations, you don't know what's going on. I guarantee you, and NPR won't tell you. Uh, ABC, NBC, CBS, MSNBC, uh, they won't tell you. And uh, so we really have a divided country simply because of, we have a limited amount of information and knowledge being imparted of a great portion of our country. Well, well you know, Bob, you know, you know, Bob, you know, here's the thing. You have to remember, these are Democratic operatives with bylines. That's yeah. like, uh, those of us in the political business, we just say there are Democratic operatives with bylines. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. In fact, I mean, uh, a lot of them are, either were in the Obama administration or, or, uh, or have moved from there to media uh, or their brothers or their wives or something else, all connected in the media. And then when the guys in the FBI get in trouble, they get hired by MSNBC. <laughs> Uh, I, I'm just astounded. It's a different world than when I grew up in, and I'm, I'm worried about well, it. But, yeah. You know, I think me, I, me, I hope you guys are going to want to talk about what the future because I think the future looks brighter. Yeah. Well, let me yeah, yeah. A quick question here, then, uh, then maybe we'll talk about the future uh, because there was a time and place where the FBI was well respected, but if you look at the last decade and the politicization that you see in the FBI, you know, guys like McCabe. Comey and others who basically, you know, they were, you know, they were the, let's let's be blunt, they were working on behalf of an administration, not behalf of the American people. But these are institutions that literally are being destroyed uh, bit by bit. And we're starting to see this now with the military, with the, uh, the, the various critical race theory teaching. Now they're looking for extremist translation. Trump supporters within their midst. Yeah. And, and it's like, and, and it's, it's almost like they're gone out of their way to destroy the institutions that Americans have for years trusted or want to trust. And when we get down to the military side, you know, I, I'm looking at the military. You know, are we, you know, there's a part of me that says, you know, are they going to do to the military what they've done to other institutions? And unfortunately, with the military, you screw that up, you know, you lose wars. <laughs> you lose your freedom. Well, we're going to lose the country if, if, if that happens. And uh, the, the, the leadership appointed by this administration, appointed by Obama, uh, of, of just about any federal agency, uh, and I'm not talking about political uh, leadership, I'm talking about embedded uh, career uh, leadership, uh, they're predominantly Democrat. And and so, you know, that was fine up till maybe a generation ago, but it started leaking. And, and as you said, the FBI has gone off the rails in the last 10 years, but I think it began with Louis Free back during the Clinton administration. He was playing both sides, being friendly to the Republicans, being friendly to the Democrats. The FBI was a domestic uh, investigation agency. Uh he he expanded to make it, make it a worldwide investigative agency, 
and and by doing it, he diminished it completely because it it lost its expertise. Under him, our labs went bad. He made he he, he uh, made a lot of mistakes. He hired the wrong people, advanced the wrong people, and uh, I think he sowed the seeds for what's happened under Comey and McCabe and these guys. And it's it's really I I was a prosecutor and worked for the Justice Department when I was uh, right out of law school. Uh, for a number of years, and I was proud to represent the Justice Department and the FBI. Uh, I'm not proud of these people now. I'm I'm afraid of them. Yeah. Well, you have good reason. I mean, they're they're attacking practically anybody. It seems like anybody they want to, and most of those people are uh, on our side of the aisle. I mean, they have the the uh, the jackboots are uh, being used at. Uh, pre-dawn raids and and uh, all sorts of uh, unusual, shall we say, uh, prosecutions going on. And all, all true. And, and, uh, look look at all those riots. Look at all those riots all through the, uh, the upper Democrat-controlled cities up in the, in the northern part of the country all last summer. Uh, most of those people who perpetrated those riots and burned down businesses and federal buildings and and, and even killed people, none of them have been, been prosecuted. With this January 6th thing, where a lot of people go out and protest the outcome of the election, and some of them were stupid and went into the Capitol, uh, something like 400 people, have, maybe 500 people, have been imprisoned over that, and some of them are still in prison today. And I mean, there's a difference in the in the approach between in the Justice Department. It's not one-sided. Excuse me. It's not uh, it's not equal justice for all. Justice is not blind. Uh, if you're a Republican, you're damn likely going to be in trouble. And if you're a Democrat, you're going to walk scot-free. Well, it's even even worse than that. They're in solitary confinement, and and, and they're being taught. They're being fed uh, very inferior food. I mean, it's it's it sounds very much like uh, gulag or uh, yeah. you know something that we hear about we heard about with the Nazis. Yeah, or Kafka and uh, you know the Soviets uh, had the same kind of attitude. Yeah, it's uh, I think I think we're in, in dangerous times. But I want to get to why I think it's going to turn around soon. Uh, and I talked about the future. Uh, whenever you guys are ready, I want to. Bu- well, well, go ahead. Make uh, me feel good about at the end of this. So, so I don't <laughs> want to feel depressed at the end of the show. <laughs> it's, 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 the depression comes easily, more easily these days, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, I think I think it's going to happen. If you bear with me, first of all, reapportionments come in, and it favors uh, the conservatives uh, over these uh, wacko progressives. Uh, the northern states have, have lost uh, four uh, congressional seats, and the red states, uh, and I don't like to call them red states, the conservative states uh, have, have won four uh, extra seats. Uh, population from New York and California shifting to the south. Uh, Texas gains two uh, uh, Republican, I mean, two seats. And uh, Republicans already have control, complete control of the governor and all the legislature. Florida's gaining one seat and has Republicans control 
uh, the governor's mansion and the legislature. Montana uh, gains a seat, uh, and the uh, Republicans control the legislature and the governor. North Carolina uh, uh, currently uh, gains one seat, and I think has a pretty Republican legislature. Uh, the states that lose seats are Ohio, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, and Michigan. Uh, but in Ohio, West Virginia, Republicans have control of the legislature. Uh, in Michigan, the Republicans have the legislature, but Democratic governors. Uh, and in New Hampshire and Arizona, they'll gain or lose seats. Uh, but we're picking up seats and, and uh, making advances for the conservatives uh, there. And uh, the, the issues, I'm talking to my friends on the Hill all the time, and I just heard, I, went, I was at a meeting just a couple hours ago. I mean, the issues are all on our side. We talked about the school board uh, things with critical race theory and, and uh, the transgender issues. Uh, those are strongly uh, uh, bringing out strong reactions against, and not a lot of these school board people are going to be thrown out of out of office. Uh, you got the border crisis that we talked about, the energy prices that we talked about. Uh, we didn't talk about the Democrat uh, possible stealing votes, but the uh, states are under, uh, a lot of states are revising their voter registration laws and, and uh, how they uh, do elections. So uh, it's going to be harder to steal in, in so many of them. Uh, and and then when there's always the critic of the uh, woke culture, you know, this this whole woke thing is driving everybody nuts. Where you get canceled for saying anything, and I'll probably because of this program, I'll probably be canceled and never get on the air again. Uh, oh, finally, you, oh, no, no, you. <laughs> you always have a <laughs> room with us until we get canceled first. Okay, well. <laughs> that's the deal. And the, finally, the Trump judges. The judges are uh, Trump. Didn't if he didn't do anything else, he had put about three four hundred judges that he appointed, and that's going to make a big difference in who goes to court and how the the cases turn out. Well, hold hold that optimistic thought. You're uh, listening to the Resistance Hour on the Bachelor News Radio Network. You might know me. I'm Fifty Cent. You may follow my tweets, my Facebook friends. Odds are a few in six degrees separate us. We're that close. What's crazy is one in six don't know where their next meal is coming from. These are your co-workers, your neighbors, your friends. Hunger is too close for us to ignore. So visit feedinamerica.org slash hunger and find your local food bank to see how you can make a difference. From one close friend to another, let's do this. I'm 50 Cent, and together we are Feeding America. A message from Feeding America and the Ad Council. Napa know-how. Napa guy knows not to judge a man by his car's multicolored paint job or absence of modern gadgetry. Who cares if it's technically old enough to vote and the windows are powered by the strength of your left arm? Your monthly payment is zero, and it'll stay that way. Because with over 500,000 parts and a little Napa know-how, you can keep anything on the road. She may not be pretty, but she's all yours. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. You're listening to the Resistance Hour on the Bachelor News Radio Network, and uh, we're getting a, uh, a little bit of relief from the uh, dis- despair that seems to be <laughs> so easily come by uh, in our uh, daily discourse here as we look, look around and watch the Biden administration slowly or quickly uh, 
destroying many of the uh, accomplishments that uh, we we have cherished in the uh, in the last few years. Uh, and Bob, <clears throat> you were talking about reapportionment, uh, and before that, though, they have, we have to have a. Uh, uh, a voting system that uh, is uh, fair and 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 works uh, the way it's supposed to, and right now we've got a uh, real threat uh, against that in both the Senate and the House. In fact, I think the Senate is uh, ready to debate the uh, S1 uh, nationalizing uh, uh, national elections. Uh, do you have any uh, insight into that? Well, actually, I just, uh, in this meeting, I was in a little while ago, I talked to a friend of mine who's in the U.S. Senate, and uh, they killed it completely yesterday. Uh, Who did? It's gone. Uh, hmm? Yeah, they, the HR1. That's it. The Republicans did. Uh, so it's not going to happen. Uh, the, of course, uh, you know, at any time, if... if uh, they had if the Democrats could put together a majority to kill the filibuster, they would, and then uh, they would probably they they might pass that. But that fifty votes, fifty Republicans all stood firm uh, for against HR one, so that's not going to be law from what he told me, uh, and and that, so that's over. But you still but got the had... possibility of, of of the filibuster getting killed and then uh, bringing. District of Columbia into statehood, and Puerto Rico into statehood, and doing a lot of other awful stuff. So, I, I don't consider ourselves out of the woods. Didn't they? Have, they had to get a couple of Democrat votes, didn't they? Did you, uh, you get Manson and. Well, no, not no. You have fifty votes against. You can't get. You can't get the fifty-one. Uh, uh, four. Are they. Uh, well, they're fifty-one. Well, the hundred and first uh, vote is, I mean, what uh, the hundred and first vote no, no, is. But the, the, the HR one is is subject is 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 subject before the filibuster. Yeah. You need sixty votes uh, to pass, and they can't get sixty votes to pass HR one. Then that's not going to happen. Uh, so, from what I'm told, it, it's just dead. Oh, uh, they were debating watch. that last night on the on the uh, TV. Yeah, yeah. Now they, yeah, he's he's right. He, now the real question, Bob, and I, you know, I'd like to have you kind of get your you know, talk to your sources because I'd like to have you back on the show because you, you know, the John Lewis bill has got some. When you look at the John Lewis bill, which is the HR four, uh, you know, they're basically going to give the Department of Justice pretty much free reign to determine whether or not a state or laws their version of what needs to be done. So you still have that issue of the Department of Justice intervening through HR four. So I agree with you. I don't think I don't think they have the votes without killing the filibuster though, but I may be wrong. I, I haven't followed that one quite as much as I followed yeah. HR one. I, I really think if HR one were to pass, uh America would be lost. We, the Democrats yeah. would control the Congress for the rest of, of, of eternity. If they got through um, so the Senate, if it if it got through the Senate, it's not going to get well. Gary got that through the House, but yeah, but it's not for this time around. It's not likely to pass HR one. Now I don't yeah. know about HR four. That's that that may still be on the table. Well, that's the one I would keep your eye on. 
that one. Plus, the other aspect is I would keep your eyes on the Department of Justice uh, independently, making uh, going to basically try to strike down some of these laws that have been passed. Uh, that, well, uh, Mary Garland is uh, is the Attorney General, and of course, I mean. Everybody gives him credit as being much more moderate than Joe Biden's proven to be or in uh, most of the Democrat Party. But uh, I want to see some even-handed justice, and I, I'm beginning to sense that uh, even though he's supposed to be a moderate guy, uh, justice is a little too much one-sided toward the Democrat Party. Well, let me put it this way. My view of Garland is he's, you know, he is not – either he's not in control truly – uh, but those underneath him are, or he was a lot more radical than people thought. If nothing else, we should be think, thanking uh, Mitch McConnell for keeping him off the Supreme Court. Yeah, I agree with that. But what you just said about Mary Garland could probably apply uh, to the White yeah. House as well. Uh, I, yeah. I, I think that uh, there's a strong chance that uh, we're being run by a consensus of unnamed, unfaced, uh, faceless people, uh, because I don't sense that the president is strongly in control. Oh, boy. <clears throat> I sure hope that works. But uh, we had uh, Tim uh, Hugo on last week, and we were talking about, the, um, among other things, uh, the uh, future possibilities of uh, Virginia. And... Uh, you know, he's been out there campaigning uh, most of the spring, and uh, he he is very confident that uh, that the Republicans are going to uh, return the uh, return the, the the blue state into red again. Tim's a good guy. I, he he works with me from time to time, and he's a good friend. And uh, I, I'm really really sorry he didn't become the nominee for lieutenant governor. Because uh, I do think he would have gotten elected, uh, but he's high on Glenn Youngkin, who I who have not met, who's about six seven and uh, independently wealthy, and I think that he's going to give Terry McAuliffe uh, a race for his money for governor of Virginia. Uh, I saw just I, I went to John Warner's funeral today, Senator. Oh Warner. really? Uh, yeah, and I saw uh, uh, Governor McDonald uh, in line, and we chatted a bit and. And he's very encouraged uh, with the Yunkin uh, uh, race. So uh, he, he thinks we have a very good chance uh, that uh, take a, to take over in Virginia. Uh, and I think uh, while I'm on that, I just think that uh, we have a very, very good chance of capturing the House of Representatives next year. <clears throat> in a, in, unfortunately, it's 18 months. But it, uh, I think that... Um, the days of uh, Nancy Pelosi's speakership are drawing near. Uh, I think it's uh, uh, it, it, there's a good chance that uh, we could retire her, and uh, that would be great for the nation. <laughs> what do you think of what do you think of the Republican governor of uh, Maryland? Oh, uh, I've met him and I like him. He's a very nice guy. Uh, oh yeah, he's, very... he's a very popular guy. Uh, he's not a hardcore conservative, but uh, on the end, other hand, sometimes I'm not either. Uh, but I think he's uh, uh, been a, a terrific governor for, for Maryland. 
uh, he's got to deal with a very tough legislature, uh, hardcore Democrat legislature, and most uh, all but one of their congressional delegations uh, is, uh, is strongly uh, Democrat. Uh, but uh, no, I think uh, he, he's he gets along. He's he's got the ability as a politician to get along uh, with people who disagree with him, and that's a mark of a leader. Uh, you know, he, he doesn't just appeal to one side or the other. He appeals to everybody, and and that's why he's in his second term uh, for uh, yeah. for governor. I'm, whether he has a shot for president or something, I, I'm not yeah. very sure. Well, but uh, I think he's he great where he is. Yeah, to me, I kind of look at him in two ways. Number one, uh, if I'm telling Leon Hogan, said, don't run for president, you're not going to make it through Iowa. Trust me, I, I live in Iowa. But, you know, the U.S. Senate seems to be the, the potential grant for him. I mean, I mean, he's not my cup of tea, but he's going to be a lot more conservative than anything the Democrats are going to elect. <laughs> Yeah, and I, but I, I got to say, Ben Cardin, I know well, and he, he's a liberal, but yeah. he's a good man and very decent yeah. guy. Uh, and uh, I don't know what he's, how long he plans to, on staying in. But, uh, I, I'm, 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 I'm always been uh, glad to know Ben Cardin. I, I like him a lot. Mm-hmm. Well, <clears throat> he certainly doesn't vote our direction. No, no. No, no, he certainly doesn't. Uh, but uh, you know, uh, if you can, I, I agree. If, if if the governor would decide to run for senate, I think that'd be great for Maryland. I don't live in Maryland, but uh, no. uh, frankly, Maryland is a pretty strong Democratic state these days. Yeah. Well, he, well he, he he's surprisingly, it seems to me, surprisingly uh, uh, popular, Hogan. Uh, you know, for a guy that's first of all, he, he's he's the only uh, the only Republican in sight, and yet he seems to be able to uh, he, he get things that he wants, and 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 the people seem to like him. And uh, you know, he almost died of cancer, and now he's yeah. uh, back in back in the saddle. Uh, I I just uh, I think it's it's, it's quite a Quite a uh, an accomplishment, really, to be the, you know, to be a Republican, a popular Republican governor in a very Democrat state. Yeah, well, and they had a Republican before. He served in the House of Representatives, and I'm trying to remember his name. I can't think. Uh, oh, oh. Yeah, but he uh, uh, he was governor, uh, so they, yeah. they will elect Republicans, but. Uh, yeah. Uh Hogan Hogan has been extremely uh, effective at, at dealing with both sides of the aisle. That's yeah. that, you know, when you're in a you're in center state, that's probably a good thing. He apparently didn't uh think much of yeah. Uh, Trump. Yeah. No. Uh yeah, Robert yeah, Robert Ehrlich was the guy you're thinking of. He was a uh, 2016 yeah. Bob who? Robert yeah. uh, Ehrlich. <laughs> Early, early, yes, of course, of course, yes, absolutely, and and, uh, another good guy. uh, I guess he got out of politics altogether. Okay, the sixty-four dollar question, Bob. What do you think of what do you what do you think of Trump's uh, future? 
Well, if he gets in, I think uh, it's going to be very difficult for anybody else uh, to to stay in or prevail. Uh, if Trump really wants to run, I, I think I'd give him at least a 70% chance of, of uh, being the nominee. Getting elected again, I'm not positive. I, I, I think I think he, sh- he he in his last six months in office didn't do himself any favors. Uh, I mean, it, well, actually, six three months out of uh, in office and three months after, uh, his whole handling of the Georgia deal and losing the Senate, uh, the Senate seats in Georgia, was not a shining star uh, for Donald Trump. Uh, his treatment of Vice President Pence uh, was yeah, that, hasn't hasn't been very pretty. That was surprising. Uh, yeah, and and I mean he does hold grudges, and maybe if he's listening here, he'll have a grudge against me. And I'm a strong supporter of uh, his policies. I think he I think he was a fantastic president. Uh, but uh, I think you know your time comes and goes, and. You got to know when to step down, uh, and, and I'm not sure that he'll ever come to that conclusion. But he, if he does, uh, <laughs> I think uh, the Republican Party will survive. Uh, you got you got the governor of Florida who's in there, and, and the former governor of South Carolina, and a lot of other good Republicans uh, who run. Uh, Hogan, you mentioned uh, uh, others. Uh, may, oh, uh, the former governor of New Jersey, uh, Christie. Uh, you got a whole bunch of people ready to go. Very good bench. If uh, if Trump well, decides to go, they're not going to be able to, able to compete with him. I don't think. Well, well he's start, you know, yeah, he's I, starting the rallies yeah. again. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. In my own view, four more years, and a lot of it depends on things, but I think. The longer we stretch this out, uh, the more other candidates will come to the forefront. I think, I mean, people are already taking a serious look at Ron DeSantis, who's done my job probably as good as a job uh, over the past year and a half as anybody could ever possibly do. You've got other candidates out there. And, and I'm going to say this. I'm not convinced that Donald Trump really is going to run at the age of 70, 70, 70 when that's there. And number two, you know, he's going to be spending the next three or four years of his life fighting off legal challenges. You know, they're not going to stop until they destroy him or get him in jail or bankrupt him and after his family as well. I, I, I'm reminded, you know, I don't know if you guys remember the story of Andrew Mellon, the Secretary of Treasurer uh, mm-hmm. in the Hoover. And when he left, when the FDR basically spent a good portion of his life going after Mellon until the day, and even after he died. It wasn't until after he died that they finally, basically, you know, he was exonerated of everything he was accused of. And I see the same thing with Trump. I, I truly think he's going to be spending his life over the next three to four years. Uh, fighting off challenges. He, he's already got one in New York that's coming along. Uh, and, I, and I just think, and I'm wondering at the end of the day, does he think it's worth his effort or does he think he'll be more effective outside of the political process? I think so a lot of depends I, I on these rallies. Right. I, but it, I think it's criminal. I, I mean, I really, to misuse the processes 
Uh, this and under our judicial system, you're supposed to search. You're yeah. supposed to uh, prosecute crimes, uh, not search for people to prosecute. And uh, I, I just think it's really awful what they're doing. I think I, I, Cyrus Vance, the DA of uh, New York, uh, doesn't have a crime. He had the vaguest idea of what the crime is, but he yeah. sure as hell is going after Donald Trump. And in my opinion, well, that's, that's, that's right. prosecutorial. I, I would like to see well, him prosecuted I, for that. Yeah. You know, I agree with you. I agree with you. But my point is that this is what he's going to be facing over the next you know, several years of his life. I really do think this is yeah. going to happen. And I think it's going to impact whether or not he runs. And But I think in the end, I think in the end, we're going to have a new generation of leadership that will pop through. And I just have a feeling when a push comes to shove, Republicans in 2023 are going to ask themselves, who can win? Who can win? And I think in the end, that's going to decide it. That's my view. Well, let's take the legislature before then. I, I, so I'm, 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 I like to do things incrementally. I'm not going to worry about who's president. I, 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 I don't want a Democrat to win uh, next time. And I, I, I really don't think uh, that, that – uh, uh, the current vice president has a shot in hell, and I don't think the current president will run, be, will be able to run back at, at that time. Uh, so the Democrats got a, a dilemma on who they come up with, and and so we'll figure out what we're going to do. But yeah. in the meantime, we've got to take the House of Representatives and hopefully the Senate too. I agree with well, you. Well, we have one minute left, and Bob, uh, we want to thank you for uh, spending this time with us and. Uh, we're uh, very uh, anxious to uh, get forward. We're very anxious to see your predictions come true. <laughs> so, Me too. Uh, <laughs> you're, uh, you're, Thanks, you're, guys. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, and uh, Tom, uh, we'll uh, we'll we'll be uh, seeing each other on the trail again. That's right. This is, we'll catch you. This is, this is uh, Dr. Larry Fedewell, and uh, we're uh, signing off from the Resistance Hour with the uh, blessing that we hope God blesses America. Amen. <laughs>